Hey everyone, this is Christ Presbyterian Church in New Haven with CPC Podcasts, and you're listening to The Sunday Sermon. Our Old Testament reading is from the book of Psalms, Psalm 80, verses 7 through 19. Restore us, O God of hosts, let your face shine that we may be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it and all that move in the field feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that you were right hand planted, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life, and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. And our New Testament reading is from the book of John, John 15, 1 through 17. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that you that to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, 
and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. This is the word of the Lord. Welcome. If you're joining online, good morning. We are uh, in a beautiful passage in the Gospel of John, this beautiful image of the vine and the branches. And I have to confess, uh, it feels nearly impossible for us to hear a passage like this in our society. What I mean is, it feels like Jesus, and what we're mostly going to talk about is Jesus talking about absolute dependence upon him. And it feels like wherever I look in our society, the goal and the assumption and the purpose is absolute independence. What I mean is, doesn't it seem like freedom and personal autonomy and independence is all that we should work for and care about? I mean, we can look at technology, technology giving us more and more unbelievable power precisely for us as individuals, right? We can be so utterly self-sufficient in our technology and media. You can see it on both sides of the political discussions. Everything gets framed in terms of how can I actualize my individual freedom? What would it mean for us to reconsider all of that? What would it mean for us to try and hear this passage? This totally different vision of life where God is calling us not to be self-sufficient, self-reliant, but to be utterly dependent on him. Not to be always figuring out how can I get more for myself so I can live more alone and more isolated, but precisely the opposite. How can I learn to depend more on Jesus and his body? Well, I think we need to pray for the Spirit to open up our hearts because this is a radically different sort of life that Jesus offers us. Let's pray. Lord, we pray for your power. We pray for your Spirit to be among us. Just as Jesus promised the disciples in the upper room that he would send another helper, we ask that you would 
Come, make us more like Jesus. Allow us to hear the beauty, the compelling vision of this passage that we would be taken up, that we would be caught up, drawn to uh, being a branch in the vine that Jesus is. Lord, we ask that you would speak, give us love and joy and peace in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in the context of the Gospel of John, and if you're uh, visiting, we're simply walking through this Gospel uh, in this season of our church, and he is uh, trying to prepare them for his death. Uh, They really don't know why he is going to die, why would he leave them, Uh, but he's trying to prepare them nonetheless, Uh, and he has said that he is going to quote-unquote leave, but not really leave. He is going to send another helper, the spirit of truth, to provide his presence and his power. They should be rejoicing because of this, but they're obviously very confused. So then he shifts and tries to give them another picture of what it means for them to uh, still be with Jesus. And the picture he gives is the vine. So before we look at uh, some of the specifics of the passage, just a couple words about why this metaphor, why the vine. Well, remember, ancient Mediterranean culture, vines are everywhere, vineyards are normal. You may never have seen one in your life, but for them, this is what they walk by all the time. This is probably what they or their friends or family members work in. They work in vineyards olive or grape or whatever. We're not sure which type, but all sorts of vineyards all around. This is a basic metaphor for them. Some of them can be huge and strong, these vines. We had some huge, I think it was a grape vine in our yard once. I mean, I could swing. I was trying to clear it out. I could swing on it and it wouldn't budge. They can be huge and taking care of them is a huge undertaking. The other main reason I think Jesus uses this image, not just because it's every day, but because it's biblical. It's a common metaphor for Israel. We heard in Psalm 80, where the psalmist describes Israel being saved out of Egypt and says, you brought a vine out of Egypt. And then asking, why has God not sufficiently taken care of that vine? Most of the times in the Old Testament when Israel is described as a, as a vineyard or a vine, it's normally God has planted this vineyard, God has taken care of this vineyard, he has gone to such great lengths so that it would flourish, and now it's producing sour grapes. It's being destroyed despite all that God has done for it. So that's the common image that Jesus is also pulling on but I want us to notice the father is the vine dresser or the farmer the one sort of in charge of how to take care of this vineyard in Jesus' image Jesus is the true vine which should strike us because in this case Jesus is now identifying himself as Israel Israel is the vine and Israel is the vineyard and in this case Jesus says I am the true vine, and you are the branches. 
I am the vine. Sometimes Jesus emphasizes the fact that he is one with the Father. And he says that in this section also. But when he says, I am the vine, he is saying, I am one with you, the new Israel. And what would it mean to then be a part of that vine? Well, I think the overriding uh, description of this, the one, what I want to talk about first, is really dependence upon Jesus. The way he talks about over and over, back and forth, he just keeps saying, abide. Abide in me, abide in my love. Another way to translate it, uncommentators translated it simply as make your dwelling or dwell. Sounds a little cumbersome sometimes, but same word which then fits with what he has been talking about with the Holy Spirit in chapter 14. This is not a new subject. All of a sudden he's talking about the vine and we're not sure why. He is saying this is how you dwell with me by the power of the Holy Spirit. Remember, the spirit of truth provides Jesus' presence for us. What sort of dependence? What does it mean to depend upon Jesus? Well, one, it's meant to be an encouraging fact. We get to depend upon Jesus. Remember, the disciples don't know why he's saying they're gonna, he's going to leave. He doesn't, they don't want him to leave. They've followed him for three years. They think they're going to take back Israel from Rome. And he's saying, I'm going to leave. And so he's trying to encourage them. We can hear this and say, we get to abide in Jesus. It's an opportunity to dwell with him. But of course, we can also see that it is a sort of dependence that really is absolute. There is clear either-or language here. You can do nothing if you don't abide in me. If you don't dwell with me, you will be thrown away into the fire, just like the branches that do not bear fruit. There is this sense that everything really is at stake when it comes to dwelling with Jesus. This is where I think it gets to the heart of why it's so hard for us to hear this. It's so, it seems so countercultural that the goal is not autonomy or choice. The goal is not to seek life on my own. Do not seek life apart from Jesus. There is this passive dependence upon Jesus. We are even, he ends there, towards the end, he says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. We didn't even get to choose him. He wants to make sure we see, first off, how powerless we are. Normally, in the ancient world, if you're following a teacher or a rabbi, it's because you chose to do that. Oh, I'm compelled by this rabbi, so I'm going to choose him. I want to become one of his disciples or followers. Not the case with Jesus. Jesus chooses us. We need to see that 
we don't bring anything to this equation. Surrender here is the start. In Paul's language, the starts with the death of the old self. Our new life is hidden with Christ in God. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, right? It has to start from absolute dependence upon Jesus. Not independence, not trying to make my own way or glory or power. This this should offend us. This should startle us. That the core, the, the, the beginning of the Christian life is to say, you can't live on your own. And if you're trying to do that, you are like the walking dead. There is that passive countercultural aspect to it. But that doesn't mean, of course, that we're just totally inactive. You see in the, later in the passage where he's going to talk a lot about bearing fruit and love. Again, in Paul, this similar combination in Philippians 2. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why? For it is God who works in you. There's this passive and active back and forth. So to depend upon Jesus does not just mean to sit on your couch and say, all right, I'm depending on Jesus in prayer and I'm not doing anything else. That's not what it means. It's absolute. It's also reciprocal, meaning he is going to dwell in us and we are going to get to dwell in him. The father dwells in him and he dwells in the father. The father will dwell in us. It is like a relationship. Because it is a relationship. That's what I think some of these if clauses are meant to stir in us. Not if as if it's some kind of conditional threat. If you don't do this, then it's a back and forth. It describes, sounds almost circular, but it describes any sort of relationship. Right? I can say to my wife, if you draw closer to me, we will be closer. We will be more intimate. That is true. I don't have to say that like it's a threat. It's just true of a relationship, right? This dependence is I and you and you and me. It is a beautiful dependence. How God wants to dwell among us. It's also constant. At least it's meant to be constant. This is where also I think it's different than any other sort of relationship. The dwelling and abiding, these are ongoing descriptions. The goal is not to outgrow our need for Jesus. This is not like moving from adolescence to adulthood. Teenagers, you may not realize it, but your parents do want you to become more independent from them. Because that's the normal developmental thing to do to become an adult. That's part of being a good parent, right? Though it's hard, it's we want our children to emerge as, in some ways, uh, self-sufficient in, a, in a, a minor way, right? You don't want to grow 
teenagers who are just codependent on you all the time. But that's different. That's different than our relationship to Jesus. We're not trying to outgrow our need for God. So in this way, God is not a parent trying to get us out of his house. It's the opposite. The goal is to see our need more and more. See how we need to surrender more and more. Repentance and faith is a cycle that we will never grow out of. You're not going to, I hate to break it to you, but you're not going to ever need to come to church and not say the confession of sin. It won't happen. Because, remember, the goal is to become more and more like Jesus. More and more dependent upon him, made in his image. Conformed, as Romans 8 says, conformed to the image of his son. That's what he's trying to do in us. So if anything, we're going to depend more and more on him. If you ever read some older Christian books, you know, some old saints, sometimes they seem so melodramatic in how desperate they're crying out for him and how serious they take their sin. And it's because they are so near to Jesus. They see how desperate they are to be more like him. How far they have strayed. So we have this picture of being branches in a vine where we are called to depend upon Jesus, abide in him, dwell in him, dwell in his love. So we need to ask, and as I said at the beginning, there's probably thousands of ways, but we do need to ask, what are the ways that we seek our own independence? You can say that is one way to frame the whole problem. From the very beginning, why did Adam and Eve fall? Because they thought they could do life on their own. They thought they could define good and evil apart from God. What do you pursue that is independent of Jesus? What do you not want to dwell in Jesus during? What do you not want him to see in your life? Or do you not want him to experience with you? Not, and not just what, why? Why are we convinced that independence is such a great ideal? What are we after? Do we doubt whether God is good? We doubt whether being in his presence will be good for us. Why don't we yearn for a greater awareness of his presence? Want to be near him more? Do we assume that we are made for what? Individual, more and more individual comfort, ease? What would it mean to you? try and train our hearts so that this picture of being dependent on the vine is what compels us. A picture of 
what seems sometimes like weak vulnerability where we are dependent on Jesus, not on ourselves, how can that compel our hearts? It is a constant, regular walk of training our hearts to love that more and more. But there is, it can change. There is a training. Things do change. I was, I don't know what made me think of this, but our perception of fashion changes. It's very strange for me. Skinny, when I was in school, middle school, high school, skinny jeans were horribly nerdy. Like, I would never be caught in jeans that are somewhat skinny. Like, we had to wear the baggy stuff, probably with the baggy cargo pants, whatever. Shorts, if you're playing basketball, were always baggy, and the baggier the better. Now that just looks stupid to me. Now it actually, look, my perception has changed such that baggy clothes look dumber to me. I don't know why. That's a silly example of how our perception does change, largely from what we surround ourselves in. So as I see cooler and cooler people in skinny jeans, I want to be like that. I don't know. And so as we grow more and more and fill ourselves more and more with the word of Christ, we will see that dwelling in the vine is what is beautiful, is what compels me, not some other kind of vision that overwhelms us. Okay, dependence upon Jesus. What is that? What else does he, is he trying to do here in this passage? Dependence upon Jesus, I want to talk about two main things. It empowers us and then it transforms us. It empowers us to bear fruit. He talks a lot about fruit here. But it is, it is uniquely empowering to realize that we can be a branch in the vine of Jesus. Notice what this does. It's humbling because we're not the vine. Jesus is. It's humbling because it says you are not sufficient, good enough on your own. It's humbling, but it doesn't lead us to despair. It doesn't lead us to shame. Because it says you get to be connected to the vine. You get to be a branch in the vineyard of the Lord. So it's uniquely empowering, I think, in that way can give us boldness that's not prideful. We don't have to have the burden of defining ourselves because God has defined us already. He empowers us in a unique way, I think. But the main point there, empowering us to do what? To bear fruit. Did you notice early on in the passage, verse 2, every branch in me, Jesus says, that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Those are the only two options. And you may have thought it was going to say, every branch that does bear fruit, what? He allows to enjoy and sit back and be comfortable. That's not what he says. You can either not bear fruit and be thrown away, or you can bear fruit and you will be pruned. 
There is no other option. Pruning in vineyards, I am told, can be very severe, very intense, cutting back the branches very severely. That's the picture he wants us to have in what it means for us to bear fruit. Obviously, assuming it's going to include suffering, things that are uncomfortable, because remember, we want to be fruit on our own, apart from the vine. Bearing fruit primarily in this passage means something very simple, at least the way he says it, though of course it's very hard to execute. What it means is simply to love. Verse 8, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Then he ends the passage, these things I command you so that you will love one another. Love here, once again, is a command. It's almost basically synonymous for his commandments. What are Jesus' commandments? Love one another. It's confusing, I think, sometimes to think of love as a command uh, because we think of love as a feeling. But it's not a feeling in the Bible. It's a command. It's an action. It's a work. Something we're called to do. Something we were made for. Remember, if we are made to be dependent on Jesus in the vine, what that means is living in communion with God will be in concert with reality, with how we are made. So what are we made for? We are made to love one another. So we never have to wonder whether or not we should. One Christian philosopher gives this analogy when he's talking about love as a command. He gives this analogy of uh, two great artists. So imagine two great artists from the same hometown. One artist leaves the hometown travels throughout the world and then returns and says to his other fellow artist, I didn't find anything worthy of my skill to paint. There was no person or vista worthy of my great skill. The other artist has not yet left his hometown because everywhere he looks, he sees beauty worthy of his art you see the difference if love is a command it's not dependent on the one you are loving we don't have to wait for each other maybe i should say you don't have to wait for me to become more lovable to you in order to love me that's the picture of love here. The Spirit is going to make us more and more willing to love. That's what He's calling us to do. That's the sort of community that Jesus is forming around us. It is a very, very different community than 
anything else, isn't it? This community, this new Israel, so much of this is all focused on the church. To love one another is the simple command given to the church because we are defined by the vine who has loved us. I happened to catch a new uh, article in the New Yorker on Christian nationalism and this idea that Christianity can become another sort of ethnic heritage to defend. And it just seems like a total category mistake. What Bible are you reading? Jesus didn't come to find a, found a nation. He founded a church that is international, that is not tribal. It is made up of all tribes. It is made up of those who love their enemies. It is a great, great danger for any of us, for any church to be united by something that's not Jesus. To be united by some other kind of affinity. That's what a tribe does, right? You're united by your political affiliation or background or language or whatever. Now, some of those, of course, are inescapable. We are speaking English in this church, and that's inescapable. But that's not the goal. We yearn for the day when we are worshiping in all the languages that we see in Revelation. Jesus is founding a different sort of community. The bearing fruit, what it means to dwell or abide in Jesus is simply to love one another. The focus here being in the church. Obviously, if this is creating us, it's going to flow outside the church as well. It's going to impact us in many different ways. But the focus here that Jesus is focused on is how this creates a church that has love for one another. Because what can get in the way of our love? If you think about why is it hard for us to love one another, it's going to be things that end up competing with Jesus, right? Because the more that we dwell in Jesus and dwell in the vine, the more any other excuses we have to not love will diminish, will disappear. That's what should compel us. This picture of a community that selflessly loves one another. Because remember, love is defined by Jesus. Love as I have loved you. And then my joy will be in you. So he empowers us to bear fruit as we depend upon him. Bearing fruit really is love. And then he transforms us into his friends. This also is quite wild. Famous, famous verse, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Then he says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends 
For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. The Bible doesn't talk a whole lot about friends in this way. In the Old Testament, Abraham is called a friend of God, which is very striking. The intimacy that Abraham had with God. And Moses, we are told, thus said, thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. In both cases, there is an intimacy to the friendship. In the ancient world, friendship was also defined as this equality between friends. Just as he identifies with being the vine, he is not ashamed, giving us this stunning equality to him. He's not ashamed, we are told, to call us his friends. Hebrews, quoting Psalm 22, he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. This is stunning that the Lord in the flesh now calls us his friends. There was a high view of what friendship meant. We use friends now so casually. According to Facebook, I have over a thousand friends, so beat that. But it was a lot more serious and intimate in Scripture. And, of course, he tells us what it means to be his friends. He has revealed all things to us. And he is dying for us. Greater love has no one than this. It's interesting, though, I think in the context, the emphasis is not as much on the fact that Jesus is dying for us as the fact that we now are called to be friends and are called to die for one another. Obviously, both are true, but this whole context is about loving one another. You now are to be friends to each other because you are friends to Jesus and because Jesus is your friend. To be the friend of Jesus is not simply to receive the death that he died for us, although it obviously is that. It is also to say, okay, if you want to be friends, there is an equality, a back and forth, a reciprocal relationship where we now die for one another. Which, of course, puts us back to love. That's what it means to love. What reasons do you still struggle with to love? That's really what I want us to consider, to end with. What are ways that you need to study your own love of independence? Or maybe you should call it just love of self. Your own selfishness often is simply the problem. Remember, every command that God gives us, he empowers us to fulfill by the Holy Spirit. So he would only say anything like this because he is giving us the power and ability to fulfill it. That's exactly what we see all over this passage, right? The Holy Spirit is going to dwell with us, that we may be in Jesus, that we may become like him. Why? 
so that we may love just as Jesus has loved us. Let that be the compelling vision of our lives. Amen. Let's prepare to come to his table. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Sermon. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Be sure to subscribe to CPC Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. If you liked this show, consider a five-star rating, share it with your friends, or write to us at podcast at cpcnewhaven.org.